Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for joining us here on ADH TV, a streaming service. I keep telling you, it's your last line of defence when it comes to saying it how it is. Our country is riddled with issues, energy, the cost of living, runaway inflation, the shambolic government flood response, the list goes on. To watch ADH TV on your television is easy. Just search ADH on the Apple TV App Store, tell all your friends, or the Google Play Store, depending on what model television you have. If you can't do it, well, you can always listen to the full episode on podcast the following day. Just search Alan Jones wherever you listen to your podcasts, Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and get listening. Well, tonight we cross to London to speak with the political editor of the Express Online, David Maddox. This man's got his ear to the ground of the Conservative Party. We woke up to big news today. Two of Boris Johnson's most senior cabinet ministers have resigned. First, Sergeant Javid, who was the former Chancellor, now Health Secretary, and then Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor. Both published letters on their Twitter accounts explaining why they could not remain in their posts. Both are extremely talented. In his resignation letter, the Chancellor revealed splits with Boris Johnson on economic policy and hinted that he believed that Boris Johnson's plans to both raise spending and cut taxes were unrealistic. As for Mr Jarvid, he said, the British public expected integrity and criticised the lack of humility and grip in Downing Street. Some weeks ago now, I asked David Maddox in the UK report who he thought could replace Boris Johnson as PM. And he said there was an outsider, and he named him Nadim Zahawi, born in Baghdad, the Education Secretary. Well, now Zahawi has been named the new Chancellor, the first ever Chancellor of the UK to be born outside the UK. It's understood Johnson and Zahawi agreed on the need for tax cuts to secure growth in their one-on-one -on -one meeting last night. A senior government source praised Zahawi as a wealth creator, a nod to his past building the polling company YouGov. However, there are suggestions also that Boris Johnson was frightened that he might resign as well, 
and so gave him the job ahead of Liz Truss and Priti Patel. Look, all in all, the UK is in a similar plight to Australia right now. Public morale is low. A so-called centre-right party, just like our past nine years with the Liberal Party in government, the welfare state has been allowed to grow. Wages are flat. Inflation's at a record high. Unions are striking. Energy prices are going up and up. Politicians are consumed with woke ideology, not prepared to stand up to and say basically enough is enough. Climate change alarmism here and there is allowed to dominate public debate. Housing affordability is out of control. The young resent the old. And the calamity of these harsh lockdowns has created a grave mistrust in government. There are huge issues at hand. Political parties are suffering an identity crisis. Not sure how to deliver proper reforms and resurrect patriotism. I'll also look at the interest rate issue and the failure of the Reserve Bank. Two interesting stories out of Wimbledon. And the big threat, this is big, of foot and mouth disease from Bali. That would be devastating if it arrived in Australia. More disturbing stories about the floods and the need for a national disaster fund. I'll talk to Bella Dabrera, arguing that the divisive statements of the Greens senators, Lydia Thorpe and Adam Bant, are a consequence of what is being taught in our schools. So it's a belter of a program for you tonight, and don't forget you can have your say. Email me, alanjones at adh.tv. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Well, there are many issues confronting the person on Struggle Street. We've talked about the energy crisis. It's real. And as you've heard me say, a function of disturbing policy directions by politicians swept up by ideology and not reality. I've talked already about where net zero emissions is leading us. And we've seen that in Europe and the prospect of blackouts and higher and higher electricity prices is not going to go away. But for today, it's interest rates. The Reserve Bank has delivered a second interest rate rise and it's not over yet. The problem is that Dr Lowe and the Reserve Bank are now playing catch up. I've said many times, and I'll say it again tonight, we are not entitled to have faith in the judgment of the Reserve Bank Governor, Dr Lowe. He should go. In fact, he should already be gone. I repeat what I've previously said. In November last year, Lowe said, and I quote, it is still plausible that the first increase in the cash rate will not be before 2024. Also in November last year, he said, I find it difficult to understand why rate rises are being priced in the next year, that's 2022 now, or in early 2023. But now we've seen the first back-to-back 0.5% rate rise this century, the biggest rapid-fire interest rate increases since Paul Keating was Prime Minister in the early 1990s. Indeed, the new Treasurer Chalmers is the first Treasurer in three decades to see more than a 100 basis point rate rise, that's 1%, in a few quick months. The last was when Labor's Ralph Willis was Treasurer. The fact is we are copying this punishment now because Lowe and the Reserve Bank sat for more than six months on policy settings, no rate rises, when alarm bells were ringing. 
When Lowe made those statements last November, economic activity was accelerating. Commodity prices were already climbing and significant price pressures had already emerged. That is when there should have been interest rate increases to check inflation. But the Reserve Bank Governor, with about 1,342 full-time equivalent employees and paid about a million dollars, couldn't see any of this coming. Last November, inflationary pressures were accelerating. Did the Reserve Bank and its governor have their eyes shut when the housing market took off astronomically, seduced by cheap money? And a Reserve Bank governor telling us it had stayed cheap until 2024. The credibility of the Reserve Bank and many economists is underwater. And this must have something to do with the composition of the nine-member board of the Reserve Bank with five business representatives and four economists, including the Treasury Secretary. What homework were they doing last November? The Treasury Secretary shouldn't be on the board. He's appointed by the government. And if you want an independent central bank, you shouldn't have government officials on it. The unions are arguing they should be represented on the board. I wouldn't have a problem with that. How could that be worse than the current lot? Of course, Lowe is now saying that his statements last November were embarrassing and, quote, they should have done better. Well, if it was a cricket team that he was running, Lowe would be dropped. Let's stop gilding the lily. The Reserve Bank's credibility as an independent, inflation-targeting central bank has been found wanting. It is clear that the board of the Reserve Bank last November were blind to the inflation risks that were obvious even to a layman. And our borrowers face a year of pain with inflation likely to peak at 6% and the cash rate to climb even higher. Yet again, the punter and the battler are paying the price of bureaucratic failure. Now, the hairy-chested talk is that interest rate increases will continue, which of course runs the risk of the household sector pulling back from spending. What will that do to the economy? Of course, I must say this, borrowers must share the blame. They could never surely have imagined that this virtually free money would go on forever. Borrowers have lived through an extraordinary economic period of ultra-low rates. The average cash rate for the past decade, that's before COVID-19 hit, was 2.5%. There are people listening to me tonight who remember paying interest rates closer to 20% than 2%. I'm not being wise after the event, but I warned during the pandemic that the reckless stimulus spending would have its consequences. And here we are. The Reserve Bank was silent then and underestimated the impact that stimulus would have on stirring inflation. Out of control spending by government and the battle on Struggle Street now pays the price. As you've heard me say, we've just had a New South Wales budget brought down by a Liberal government increasing spending by 26.5% in one year. Keane and Perrottet have obviously never heard of inflation. So this very blunt instrument, interest rates, are now rising at a rapid rate to contain what in many ways government has created. As Peter Costello said last month, the Reserve Bank has presided over, quote, the worst failure in monetary policy since the 1990s. And the consequences are, he said, that the RBA now has to raise interest rates faster and further than otherwise would be the case, unquote. Costello was right when he argued the Reserve Bank had, quote, completely missed the surge in inflation in the RBA's worst monetary policy in three decades, unquote. 
Well, the result? People in Struggle Street are now grappling with large mortgages that are not locked in on fixed interest rates. As things stand through all of this, it appears that the Reserve Bank will face no sanctions. In my view, the Governor at least should be gone yesterday. The battler is being punished for more failure from highly paid and appallingly indulged public servants. Well, look, you will recall that last month I made reference to the Victorian Greens Senator, Lydia Thorpe, an Indigenous woman who, along with her leader, Adam Bant, won't stand in front of the national flag. I made the point that she's on over $200,000 a year, which she could never earn anywhere outside the parliament. Senator Thorpe described the flag as an obscenity, arguing that the flag didn't represent her or her people. You might recall Pauline Hanson made the point that Senator Thorpe's mother is an Indigenous Australian, which I think we all are, quite frankly, but then she's Aboriginal. And the father's Anglo-Saxon and a member of the One Nation Party. Work that out. In relation to being elected to the Senate, she said, quote, I'm there to infiltrate the colonial project. And she wants to question the, quote, illegitimate occupation and for people to know, quote, whose land they are on and that the first people, quote, never ceded sovereignty. Well, Bella Dabrera is a director of the Foundation of Western Civilization program at the Institute of Public Affairs. She wrote last month that I quote her, why anybody is surprised that Senator Lydia Thorpe's admission that she became a senator to, inf inf pardon me, to infiltrate the colonial project is, says Bella, in itself surprising. Writes Bella Dabrera, the same goes for the reaction to Adam Bant's refusal to stand in front of the Australian flag at a recent press conference on the grounds that it represents a lingering pain for some Australians. Bella Dabria went on. They should not be surprised because this overt anti-Australian behaviour and rhetoric from the elite in this country is hardly new. It's been going on, she says, for decades. Bella Dabria joins me. Bella, thank you for joining, for, for joining me tonight. But above all, for these incisive comments, you made the point that back in 2007, the big day out suggested that people leave their Australian flags at home and quote, we see it repeated every year when on January 26, you say, city dwellers decide that Australia Day should be called Invasion Day. Where is the surprise therefore in Thorpe and Bansk utterances? Look, um, Alan, I stand by what I said in, in the column that I, I'm absolutely um, not surprised that someone like Lydia Thorpe and Alan Bant would come out and say this. They're actually saying what they've been thinking for a long time, which is that Australia is um, a country in their minds that doesn't deserve to exist. Um, they believe that um, it was uh, invaded by the British and that we are occupying stolen land. They believe that we shouldn't be here. And um, of course, they never actually suggest what we should do if we acknowledge that we shouldn't be here. Uh, and the other point I make in the article is that it's not surprising because this is what Australians are being taught. They, they're not the only two people in Australia to come up with this idea. There are generations of school children now which are, who are being taught via the national curriculum that we are on stolen land. Bella, where is the pushback against this, all of this talk? The pushback is coming from uh, mainstream Australians who, who, who absolutely lambasted Adam Bant for refusing to have the flag behind him in, during the press conferences. The, the pushback comes every year when Australians turn out, all Australians turn out to celebrate Australia Day on the 26th of January. Um, it's, it's 
it's uh, a, a constant um, pushback against the woke elite and, and as I mentioned, the inner city elite who, who suddenly decide on the 26th of January that it's Invasion Day. In general, every year, Australians are proud to be Australian. Every time we do a poll at the IPA, overwhelmingly, it shows that Australians are proud of their history and proud of Australia and proud to celebrate Australia Day. It'd be nice to get a politician, though, into the ring to articulate that, wouldn't it? It really would, but um, but I think our politicians are too, too scared of uh, being cancelled. It's actually got to a point now where many of our politicians are too scared to say that they're proud to be Australian, which is a very, very sad state of affairs. Reparations paid to Indigenous Australians. What for? Uh, well, there is um, the, 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 for being on stolen land um, and for stolen generations. This is uh, um, actually happening in Victoria at the moment. Um, each member of the, 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 the stolen generation is given $100,000 by the Victorian government. Um, and there's a similar scheme in, in New South Wales at the moment. And, and I think um, you can safely say that following this kind of logic, we're going to have to get to a stage where all Indigenous Australians are paid some kind of reparations for, uh, for the presence of non-Indigenous Australians on the land. This is, where, this is where this narrative is going. Yes, I mean, taxpayers are paying 30 billion, B for billion a year, to quote unquote, close the gap. Why would you want to close the gap if you get 30 billion a year for keeping it open. That's a, that's a very good point. It's not in, it's not in the uh, interest of the activists to close the gap. They need the gap to justify their existence. Many Indigenous Australians though, Bella, are perfectly happy working alongside you and me and other Australians earning a quid and paying taxes. Who speaks for them? Well, Jacinta, Jacinta Price speaks for yes, them. Yes, she does. Um, and um, that, but that is the sad fact that I can only name one or two. Warren Mundine speaks for them, but you know, there's, it's a handful of um, Australians in this country who do speak for those Indigenous Australians um, every year, especially when Australia Day comes around, and yeah. they really don't care about what the day is Australia Day is celebrated on. The, the real disease, though, Bella, is that this wokeness is everywhere, isn't it? It's in politics. It's in business, in the media. So as you said, woke inner city councils refused to hold their citizenship ceremonies for new citizens on our national holiday. And then you made the point that statues deemed as white oppressors are graffitied and vandalised. And we come to Captain James Cook, accused of racism and genocide. Where do they get that from? Uh, they get that from the uh, history courses that are the being classroom. taught at school. They get that yeah. from the classroom and the lecture theatre, unfortunately. And the Rugby Football Union, that's England. They call themselves the Rugby Football Union, that's England. And Rugby Australia, they're playing test matches out here, have decided to rename the Cook Cup. Now, I should say to you, uh, Bella, I coached Mark Eller. I have no difficulty with him. He's one of the most gifted players, Indigenous and non-Indigenous, the country has ever seen. But as you say, Cook is one of the most remarkable figures in our recent history, and wokeness completely misrepresents his role. Well, yes, look, the point, um, Alan, is that if you leave a vacuum, so for example, in the national curriculum and schools and universities, they're not teaching anything about Captain Cook. So there's a big gap. And that gap is being filled by myth, by a historical myth. And that myth is that Captain Cook was a racist and a coloniser and, you know, um, represented British imperialism and genocide. And that's the myth that Rugby Australia has, has adopted. But it's adopted this, this narrative not because people are upset or there, there was a general sort of um, a movement amongst the people because they were upset that it was called Captain, it was called the Cook Cup. It's sheer virtue signaling. They think that they're appealing to, um, to some element of society by changing the name, but whereas they're actually alienating 
rugby followers. They're, they're right. alienating sports fans. But as you rightly say about Cook, and let's dismantle this, during his second voyage, he actually was thinking, far from being a racist, about the impact of European expansion on native societies and wrote, quote, we introduce among them wants and perhaps diseases which they never before knew and which serve only to disturb and happy, the happy tranquility that they and their forefathers had enjoyed. Now, by the time the first fleet landed in 1788, Cook was dead. Yes, he'd been dead for nine years. Um, so Cook was, was not a racist, he was not a coloniser, and as you mentioned, he was not even um, a proponent of colonisation. He was a man of the Enlightenment. He embarked on his first voyage because um, he was supposed to set up an observatory to observe the um, passage of Venus. It had nothing to do with colonisation. Um, so Captain Cook was a man of the Enlightenment. He was a man of his time, of progress, um, of rational thought, of scientific um, uh, progress. And um, this is something that is not taught at schools, uh, not taught at university, and, and instead yeah. he's being taught, talked about as if he's as, you know, totally, um, totally misrepresented in history. Do you think uh, no one from Rugby Australia would come on here to identify the difference between Cook and Arthur Phillip, they most probably don't know the difference, do they? And what they've been taught in the classrooms, who knows? But I mean, the curriculum teaches that the First Fleet constituted an invasion. The British embarked on a deliberate program of dispossession and genocide. And you make the point that the latest version of the national curriculum, version nine, I might add, contains within it a powerful but subtle thread, which is woven into all learning areas that we are occupying stolen land and we shouldn't really be here. It, it really does. Um, it, it takes um, a, a long time to read through the, this version line of the curriculum, but there is definitely um, a subtle but very powerful message, as you say, that that um, that we shouldn't be here, and that um, indigenous ways of uh, of being and knowledge uh, are superior to non-indigenous ways. That's definitely a theme in the the current in the national curriculum that's on its way. I mean, you, you know, you've done surveys, haven't you, uh, in which what thirty-one percent thought Cook was the first European to find Australia. I mean, Cook was a cartographer who surveyed and named features and recorded islands and coastlines on maps for the first time, killed in 1779 during his third exploratory voyage in the Pacific. But it was Captain Arthur Phillip <laughs> who guided a fleet of 11 British ships carrying the convicts who effectively founded Australia. Do you think rugby know the difference between Arthur Phillip and James Cook? Um, I don't think they do, but I don't think they care because in this case, facts don't matter. What no. matters is virtue signaling and, and um, going along with this narrative that, that you know, all white men are racist and colonisers. What, what do you know or think that primary school, parents are watching us, primary school boys and girls are learning about Cook on the one hand and the First Fleet on the other? Well, let's, let's put it this way. They're being taught how to rap about climate change and sustainability. Yes, yes. Um, and they're taught about how to, um, to conduct a welcome to country before they're taught about Captain Cook and, and That's Arthur it. Phillip. That's it. Why would Senator Bridget McKenzie, making a case for celebrating Australia Day, on January 26 say, that is when the course of our nation changed forever when Captain Cook stepped ashore? Yeah, she got it completely wrong um, because I think it's a it's it's a long time since she's read her history books. Um, but again, it's 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 not something that's taught to Australians. No. It's, a, it's a massive gap in it. But it's so important. It's the it's the foundation of this country. Yep. This is everyone it's, should know this. Sarah Hanson Young, 
in a press release, got 1770 mixed up with 1788, which she said, quote, despite an important national debate about changing the date of Australia Day away from Captain Cook's landing at Botany Bay, the government has decided to spend taxpayer money. It's stripped from the ABC on yet another monument to Captain Cook on the land of the Darawal people. I mean, are these people ignorant or deliberately misleading or what? Well, I, I can't speak for them. I, I don't know what they know, but they're certainly not um, telling us the truth. And I think the problem is if you if you conflate ideology with with um, politics and you get it all mixed up, then the historical truth is and fact is 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 obviously uh, not important. It's 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 really the political message they're trying to get across. But Bella, just before you go, then what should happen? to the education of our children in the classroom in relation to our origins and our history? They need to be taught historical fact. Um, we need to take politics and ideology out of the classroom, and we do that by get ridding, getting rid of the cross-curriculum priorities. Um, and um, we just strip the schoolroom back to facts. We strip it back to, this is what happened in 1779. This is what happened in 1788. Um, and, um, and, and leave the politics and the indoctrination out of the classroom. Wonderful to talk to you. Bella Dabrera, but isn't it to our viewers, I just say, isn't this a disturbing development? And of course, it's, it's everywhere. And we talk about it often, don't we? I simply saying education has been turned into indoctrination. And it's quite disturbing what our kids are being taught and history of Australia is being distorted. Bella, many thanks and we'll talk again soon. Thanks very much, Alan. Not at all. Bella Dabrera. Well, look, just before we go any further, Wimbledon is never without good stories. A 34-year-old German mother of two, Tatjana Maria, is a semi-finalist in the women's singles a year after giving birth to her second daughter in April last year. As recently as March this year, she was still ranked outside the top 250. In fact, she's been hitting on the Wimbledon practice courts with her eight-year-old daughter, Charlotte. She said, it's a dream to live this with my family, with my two little girls. One year ago, I just gave birth. It is crazy. She's only the sixth woman in the open era to reach the Wimbledon semifinals after turning 34, joining the legends Billie Jean King, Chris Evert, Martina Navratilova and Serena and Venus Williams. And she bids to become the first tennis mum since Australia's Yvonne Goolagong Corley in 1980 to win Wimbledon. Now, I don't think she can win it, but she's already beaten three seeded players and now plays the Tunisian Ons Jabur, who I think can win the whole title, the show. Jabur, though, to add to the flavour of the moment, is a close family friend. But another remarkable story concerns the Australian Ayla Tomlanovic. She'll play the 17th seed, Kazakhstani Elena Rybakina. Now, there are smiles here alongside sadness in the Tomlanovic story. On the funny side, her father books the accommodation, but throughout the championship, he's only booked hotel accommodation for the day after her next match, basically believing she wouldn't go any further. Well, luckily, the hotel has a free room as she bids for a place in the semi-final. The sadness comes from the fact that she's been a long-time friend of the tennis legend Chris Evert. She attended Chris Evert's trading camps in Florida from the age of 13. But the 18-time Grand Slam winner Evert has gone through very tough times. Her younger sister Jeannie died of ovarian cancer in 2020 at the age of 62. And further genetic testing in January this year showed that the great Chris Evert at 67 was in the early stages of the disease. But Chris still found time to ring Ayla, 
who told Chris Evert, I don't want to bother you with my problems because you're doing something way harder, to which the great Evert replied, no, 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 no. I love the distraction and we love each other. So we were there for each other. Lovely stuff. Tom Lanovich has reached the final eight for the second time. The first Australian woman since Yelena Dokic 22 years ago. Amazingly, by the way, it's also 22 years since Leighton Hewitt won the men's singles. Tom Lanovich last year lost to the eventual champion Ash Barty after a gruelling match that lasted two hours and 35 minutes. Let's hope fate smiles upon her tomorrow night. Well, now on a more serious note, news has emerged that the highly contagious foot and mouth disease has spread throughout Indonesia, such that the Federal Agriculture Department has issued urgent warnings to travellers to Bali in a desperate attempt to stop them from bringing the disease home. Should there be an outbreak here, it's estimated it would cost the economy up to $80 billion. The disease spreads amongst livestock, either as an airborne disease or through contaminated feed, through faeces and even clothing. It does not infect human beings. But a visitor to Bali who goes near a farm animal could bring the disease home on their clothes or shoes. Australia has strict biosecurity protocols in place to prevent high risk materials such as contaminated equipment or clothing, animals or animal products being brought in by travellers who may have been exposed to diseased animals. But any outbreak here would have a massive economic impact and generate deeply traumatic experiences. The outbreak in Britain in 2001 forced the destruction of more than 6 million pigs, cows and sheep at an estimated cost of £8 billion. While our agriculture industry is much bigger than that of the UK, the beef industry alone is worth $20 billion a year. Talk to farmers today in the UK all these years later and they can never forget the burning pits, the stench across the landscape, the immense distress that was caused and the ongoing pall cast over the entire farming community. The Albanese government, I think, should be more outspoken about this risk. Tourists have to be vigilant when returning to Australia. We were vigilant through the pandemic. Our farmers now need travellers to treat the threat of foot and mouth disease with the same amount of caution. Well, let's go to Britain and the political editor of The Express Online. You can keep up to date, by the way, by reading David Maddox. This is the most informed man on this issue, I'm telling you, in Britain. You can read him at express.co.uk. It has been an explosive 24 hours in British politics. David Maddox joins me. David, thank you for your time. You have headlined a piece, Tuesday, your time. It is the end for Boris tonight, whether he accepts it or not. Now, you had thought Boris would survive. Now two outstandingly talented senior cabinet ministers, Chancellor Rishi Sunak and the health secretary, formerly the chancellor, Sergeant Javid. David, is this the political death sentence? It is. And, you know, Boris may survive another few days or maybe a week or two even, but this is it. It's over. Uh, he, uh, you know, these are two of the top five ministers in his government. They were both highly respected men. One of them, at least, probably both of them, are now preparing a leadership bid uh, to replace him. And uh, the fact is that I think he's now lost the majority of his own Conservative MPs. 
There's going to be, I, I think we spoke about it last week, there's going to be a big vote next week for a thing called the 1922 Committee, which controls leadership election rules. Uh, the rebels, uh, although, you know, if they're in the majority, you can hardly call them rebels, I suppose, but, but the anti-Boris uh, MPs are likely to get a majority. I think the rules will be changed and uh, there will be another vote of confidence he'll be out. You're in the thick of all of this. I'm most impressed about how much you know and how many of these people are talking to you. Have MPs previously loyal to Boris Johnson told you, David Maddox, personally, that they've lost confidence in the Prime Minister? Yes, absolutely. And um, I was, uh, the, the moment yesterday came for me when I, I was sitting in a part of Parliament called Portcullis House. It's where the coffee bars are and uh, uh, it's where a lot of the gossip and, and business goes on, informal business goes on. And I was sitting there having a coffee and two absolutely rock solid Boris loyalists came to me separately and said, I've had enough. This is it. I'm absolutely fed up. I've been a rock solid loyalist. I use that word, those words, uh, but he's got to go. Um, I, I've lost confidence. And these are, and, these uh, are people, one of them, these are people, are they not, who admitted to you that they owed their seat in the parliament to Boris Johnson? Absolutely. Yeah. But basically they said, we don't have any more both, energy. Both, I mean, they were both men. Yeah. They're both men they're from red wall seats in the north, you know, those yeah. ex-Labour seats. And I, I'd literally, last week, I'd seen both of them diff in different places berating rebels, you know, and, you know, finger-pointing and getting angry about the disloyalty to Boris. It, it's over. I mean, yeah. they, you know, when he loses people like this, it is completely over. As I say, he may try to hold on for a few days. Uh, he's, he's replaced Rishi with... Uh, Another leadership contender, Nadim Sahawi. Uh, that's an interesting story, actually, yeah. because Sahawi was about to resign. And he's to uh, uh, what we're told is he, uh, they had a long meeting in Downing Street. And Boris said, well, look, if you don't resign, uh, I'll make you chancellor. And uh, um, that was the condition for Sahawi mm. to stay on. But mm. he was on yeah, the point apparently, of going. We're uh, still not sure if the Defence Secretary is going to stay in the uh, job. There's a drip, drip, drip of minor, small, minute, small sort of lower position ministers resigning, uh, even as we speak. Actually, one just before I came on air with you, um, uh, a woman called Laura Trott was the latest. And I think that takes us up to over a dozen resignations. Yeah. And, and so one of these MPs from the North said he was no longer willing to do television interviews to defend the Prime Minister. Quote, I was rock solid, but I've had enough. Uh, you just alluded yeah. to the 1922 committee. Is it the case that a whole cabal of anti-Boris Johnson MPs are now manoeuvring for election to the 1922 committee? When will the outcome of that election, which decides the leadership and no confidence motions and so on, when will the outcome of that election be known? So uh, the outcome will uh, be known a week today, right. literally a week today. Uh, in fact, next time we talk, it will be just ahead of those elections. Right. Um, the question is whether Boris will even still be there at that point. But yeah. there's a there's a slate of them ready to take seats. And once they do, I, I would imagine that uh, because there's so many uh, letters gone in asking for a um, vote of confidence from MPs, mm. 
I would imagine they'll go straight upstairs, change the rules, and mm. hold the vote of confidence. Just, just repeating for it's, our viewers, uh, just, just repeating for our viewers, this, 19, this 1922 committee has 18 officers and executives. They're elected yeah. by 213 backbench Tory MPs and 51 parliamentary That's private right. secretaries. So, if the newly elected 1922 committee results in a majority of backbenchers being elected who want Boris Johnson gone, just confirm again. Do you think yeah. they'll change the rules and allow for another no? confidence vote when the existing rules prevent a further challenge within 12 months? Yes, I'm, I'm sure of it. Uh, that is a plan and uh, I have no doubt, given the events of the last 24 hours, I have no doubt that will happen. Did and uh, uh, once, that, uh, once that happens, then Boris is toast. Gone. Absolutely toast. Did you have a second MP, because you're talking to these people also from the North, what you call a red wall Brexiteer, mm. say to you, I'm fed up, I can't go on supporting this. Yeah, absolutely. And um, this is, a, as I say, another absolutely rock solid Boris loyalist. And uh, just to explain to people, we, we, we was a, a literally a straw that has broken the camel's back in terms of, uh, in terms of MPs, the loyalist MPs at least, now, this is a resignation of the Deputy Chief Whip, Chris Pincher, uh, who admitted to, uh, last week, admitted to getting drunk and uh, basically sexually assaulting two men in the uh, private club, the Carlton Club, which is a, a club popular with Conservative MPs, has historic links with the Conservative Party. Um, anyway, after the resignation, it became clear uh, that there was, uh, you know, 12 years of issues with this man, and um, the Prime Minister had been warned about it, but ignored those warnings and actually put this man in charge of welfare of MPs and staff. And, uh, you know, it was um, yet another terrible judgment call. But then it's even worse than that. It's, it's even worse than that, isn't it? Because then didn't Boris Johnson say he, he didn't know anything about? anything about these sort of accusations, which forced, I yeah. think, Lord Macdonald to come out and have virtually accused Boris Johnson yeah. of lying. Yes, it, it, that, was a, that was a moment that kind of kicked everything off yesterday. So uh, I'm actually surprised we didn't have an on-live, uh, a live on-air kind of resignation from a minister because we had um, the Deputy Prime Minister defending Boris uh, on, uh, uh, on, on television as Lord MacDonald publishes this letter saying, yes, I told him about this man, Chris Pincher. Amazing. We had a report, we had an investigation. Amazing. He had to apologise. Yeah. And, uh, and Rob obviously didn't know anything about it. And uh, he's obviously loyal to Boris, but he was saying, oh. well, that's news to me. And um, it, it, it's just astonishing. Astonishing. And, just... and I'm afraid it feeds into the idea that, that Boris is lying to yes, me. Yes, that's right. And just it's really, hard just... to escape that. Just in relation to Australia here, uh, am I valid in arguing that one of the other things that's got him into trouble is this sort of commitment to net zero emissions? Is that an issue in the Conservative Party? It is. Uh, and uh, I've said to you for a long time that, uh, you know, there's the, there are two issues here. There's the chaos around Boris, the people he chooses, the lies, the, uh, and things like that. And then there's the bigger issue, actually, of policies and the fact that he's increasing taxes, the fact that he went for lockdown for so long, the fact that he's obsessed with net zero. 
all things which are not conservative. A number of times, conservative MPs have come up to me and said, I wish I was part of a conservative government. That's what the country elected. And this is why they want him out in the end. There's no getting around that. I said here yesterday, following on from the humiliating defeat on May 21 in Australia of our Conservative coalition, which is the sort of a Liberal coalition, that there were many Liberals, I said last night, that is Conservative voters here, and they couldn't find a Liberal party to vote for. You're saying that one MP has said, we need a leader who will make the Conservative Party conservative again. So just confirming, summing up, are you saying there are no circumstances now under which Boris Johnson can survive? Well, you know, he is he is the Houdini of uh, British politics. Uh, I mean, you can't never say never, you know, uh, but I can't see any circumstances in which. So I I think uh, as an MP said to me, uh, time is running out. He's on borrowed time Mm. now. And uh, I, I don't see him getting beyond a week, really. So Sunak and Javid obviously could see no value in sticking with a government that is sinking fast. Do their resignations, though, boost their leadership credentials? I mean, this 42-year-old Chancellor Rishi Sunak, who's now resigned, has been in Parliament for only seven years. For our viewers, he was born to Indian parents who emigrated from East Africa. He's an Oxford graduate, Stanford University graduate, Fulbright scholar. His wife's a billionaire. But in April, he became the first Chancellor in British history to be sanctioned for breaking the law while in office and was issued with a fixed penalty notice for breaching COVID restrictions. He's a former investment banker and a mate of the Conservative Party chairman, Sir Oliver Dowden, who resigned following the Conservative Party's hammering in the two recent by-elections. So, David, will Rishi Sunak now stand for the leadership and his friend, Sir Oliver Dowden, run his campaign? Yes, I think that's very likely now. And, in fact, Rishi Sunak's odds of being the next leader of... Uh, dramatically shortened. He's now the favourite amongst the bookmakers uh, for what that's worth. But uh, (laughs) I think for him, resigning early uh, was important because uh, because his image had been tarnished with that fine and with the uh, issues around his wife's tax status and things, uh, and also for the fact that he was putting up taxes. Mm. So he needed to resign early to put some distance between uh, himself and the Prime Minister. Before before we go, you're a bit of a Nostradamus. I say to our viewers, this is you're getting top draw (laughs) insights here. You are getting top draw. David Maddox knows this party inside out. You told me some weeks ago that the then Education Secretary, Nadim Zahawi, the Iraqi-born British politician, the new Chancellor, and the first to hold the office to be born outside of the UK, was a candidate for the leadership. Is that still your view? It's still my view. I still think that he's a strong compromise candidate. Uh, he's now got a chance, uh, potentially, well, maybe in the next few days, as Chancellor, to lay out what he wants to do in that job uh, and perhaps to uh, convince his colleagues that he's the tax cutter that they're so desperate for. And, uh, you know, that will that will boost his chances. Personally, I think he'd have done better resigning last night. Mm. Uh, I think that would have put him in a stronger position. Good on you. Great, David. God, you're in the thick of it. In the thick of it. Can't wait for next week, David. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? It is amazing. But Boris has only got himself to blame. Great to talk to you, David. There he is. And that man's right in the thick of it as well. Knows the scene backwards. David Maddox. Talk to you next week, my friend. Yeah. 
Good to speak, Alan. All the best. There he is, David Maddox. Look, the stories, stories emerging about the flood crisis in New South Wales must surely inspire deep concern amongst all Australians. There are 85,000 people across New South Wales under evacuation orders. The New South Wales Premier said this morning there were currently 108 evacuation orders across the state and 56 evacuation warnings. 85,000 people across New South Wales under evacuation orders. My congratulations and thanks on behalf of all these people to the Albanese government. The Prime Minister this morning announced that payments of $1,000 for adults and $400 for children affected by floods will become available immediately from two o'clock tomorrow. And the Education Minister, Jason Clare, has said that families in flood affected areas will be given financial relief from childcare fees and paid leave. Parents in 23 local government areas that have been declared natural disaster areas will be able to waive gap fees for children not attending care during the emergency, including when the service is closed. And parents will also receive financial support so that they don't use up annual leave during the emergency. The New South Wales government yesterday declared the floods a catastrophe, with residents in 23 local government areas eligible for disaster relief. The federal government is making 150 more Defence Force personnel available to assist with flood recovery efforts from tomorrow. New South Wales Premier Perrottet has warned that river systems right across the state remain full and cautioned that evacuation orders must remain in place. I note that the Premier also said this morning that he was quote unquote disappointed with the time it took for grants to be received following the Lismore disaster. As you know, I have spoken to the local MP up there, Janelle Safford, wonderful woman, who tells me that over 60% of applications for relief support had been rejected because of the absence of proper documentation. You will recall I said that dumbbells in the bureaucracy didn't seem to understand that the documentation was washed away in the floods. It is difficult when you're not in the middle of all of this to understand the full extent of flood damage. You might recall that yesterday I warned against climate change alarmists grabbing the chance to blame these weather events on climate change. History tells us that it is the kind of country we are, and it's been going on for 150 years. I repeat, in Gundagai in New South Wales in 1852, 89 people died from the floods and the entire settlement was destroyed. In floods in Melbourne in November 1934, there were 36 deaths, 6,000 homeless, 18 people drowned, 18 were killed by collapsing buildings, 1934. In the Hunter Valley in 1955, around Singleton and Maitland, there were 24 deaths, 59 homes destroyed, 40,000 people evacuated from a total of 40 towns. None of that diminishes the tragedy and trauma that Australians are currently facing. It's just meant to warn the climate change alarmists to simply keep quiet. Some of the stories of these floods require a fertile imagination to comprehend. Windsor is an historic town northwest of Sydney. Many of the oldest surviving European buildings in Australia are located at Windsor. It's 46 kilometres from the Sydney CBD. Six kilometres away is the small town of Wilberforce on the western bank of the Hawkesbury River. Between Windsor, now as I speak to you and Wilberforce, the water is spread as far as the eye can see. Travelling by a boat, the water is so deep you have to be careful not to get caught up 
in the tall power lines. The floodwaters have reached the top of the electricity poles. Two-storey homes are submerged. The New South Wales surf life-saving volunteer Bill Hawkins was driving a boat between Windsor and Wilberforce and he made the point, and I quote, absolutely extraordinary, he said, I've flown past on a boat across people's houses and their livelihoods. He said, it's hard to imagine. Well, understandably, farmers and families in the Hawkesbury and European catchment area are fatigued, demoralised and they feel punished. They're contemplating reducing the size of their agricultural crops because on top of the flood crisis, yep, they can't get workers. And when farmers scale back, we all pay the price. The price of vegetables in Sydney has risen by over 14% in the past year. Make no mistake, the impact of the flooding on food production will be widespread and felt across Australia. The whole of the east coast of New South Wales has been hammered. The Shoalhaven region on the southeast coast is 200 kilometres south of Sydney. Tourism is worth a billion dollars a year to that community. They faced the summer of 2019 and the destruction from bushfires, a flood in early 2020, then a coronavirus lockdown, then another flood, then coronavirus lockdown two, and now two major flooding events in 2022. Millions and millions of dollars have been lost across a number of businesses. As one businessman remarked, these floods just raise the anxiety level in a very fatigued, small business owner community who are not sure what tomorrow will bring. Well, in all this gloom, there is hopefully a ray of sunshine. Prime Minister Albanese in January vowed to make available $200 million every year to prepare for natural disasters as Labor sought to put pressure on the Morrison government, stumbling for a satisfactory response. Now, I've long argued the nation needs a national disaster fund, that every year at federal budget time, we should appropriate to a national disaster fund. Now, Anthony Albanese nominated a figure of 200 million out of Commonwealth revenues of over 500 billion. Let the fund be managed by three former prime ministers, Paul Keating, Julia Gillard, Tony Abbott, to name three, invest it and make it available for immediate release in emergencies such as we are now facing. People should not have to resort to begging bowls, nor should they have to suffer in such a way that victims of the 2019 bushfires, let alone the 2022 Lismore floods, are still a long way away from returning to anything approaching normality. I'm sure you agree with me that a civilised and compassionate Australia must be able to do better than this. Well, before we go, Boris Johnson is not the only political leader in trouble with his own party. The US President Joe Biden is facing possible political wilderness as well. After years of pretending Biden was God's greatest gift to US politics because he ousted Donald Trump, Democrats are now behind the scenes asking whether Biden can even continue in the job. This was always going to happen. Finally, many realists in the party have said enough is enough. This president cannot be allowed to run again in 2024. The mainstream media, both in America and abroad, have been complicit in covering up how senile and incapable Joe Biden is. It is laughable to think that someone who is such a policy lightweight, who can barely face the press pack and string a sentence together, it is laughable that such a person can be dubbed the leader of the free world. And we wonder why Vladimir Putin continues illegal invasion of Ukraine largely unchallenged, or that Myanmar collapsed 
and the 77-year-old Su Chi is imprisoned once again, or that China is belligerently doing as it pleases in the South China Sea and now in the Pacific, cozying up to nations to build military bases, or that the US-Mexico border continues to see an influx of illegal immigrants crossing to the point where Texan counties are beside themselves in how to deal with the crisis. Then there's the US economy, where there's talk of a recession, inflation at a 40-year high of 8.6%, gas prices approaching $5 a gallon this week, $1.90 more than a year ago. All of this has been fueled by ridiculous government stimulus, inflationary spending, and a Biden administration which is dumb and dumber when it comes to economic policy. The once great and powerful America is no longer under such an incompetent geriatric president who can't stay on a push bike. And the vice president, Kamala Harris, is no better. You need a microscope to find her support base. Harris is the least popular vice president in at least 50 years. Now, remember, Biden himself signaled to his top advisers during his 2020 campaign that he would serve just one term if he was elected president. Apparently now he's insistent on running again in 2024. The problem is the Democrats are low on big names and talent because if Biden were to pull the pin, top strategists say that a no-name candidate would not have enough time to introduce themselves to the public. And that's why there's talk about Hillary Clinton. In an interview on CBS, she did not definitively rule out running for president in 2024. Then there are whispers that the former First Lady Michelle Obama is interested in running. She'd also have a national network of donors and great name recognition. What I find remarkable is Biden's complete unawareness, dare I say ignorance, when it comes to questions about whether he could run again. I pity him more than anything. The fact that he thinks he's a crash hot political operator who has a grip on the economy and world affairs. The same bloke who fell asleep during a meeting with the Israeli Prime Minister in the Oval Office. It is bizarre that very few call this out, but that's what's being on the left side of politics is all about. You're free from any serious media scrutiny because the mainstream media is totally left-wing and woke. So anything Biden is good and anything conservative or Trump is bad. What do you make of that? That's it from me anyway. I'll see you tomorrow night right here on ADH TV. Thanks for being with us. Good night.